My understanding of urgency comes from my son, Bertrand, who died during the pandemic at age 12. Not from COVID-19, but from an ultra-rare genetic disorder called Engli-1 deficiency. I spent most of his life trying to understand this previously undiscovered illness and fighting it, giving up my career as a professor in computer science to focus full-time on the emerging field of precision medicine. Bertrand's life became an example to me of why the kind of acceleration promised by an advanced research projects agency for health matters. Although he was born with a life expectancy of just two to three years, a series of novel technologies from genomic sequencing to metagenomics continued to emerge just barely in time, one after another, to help extend and improve his life. Bertrand's fragile but joyful existence rode the ever-expanding wave that is the outer edge of human knowledge, right up until the day the science could no longer move fast enough. When the pandemic hit, every one of us began to feel the kind of urgency that I had known for Bertrand's whole life. That was Matt Might, the father of Bertrand, who died in October 2020. He's also the father of Victoria and Winston, and director of the Hugh Call Precision Medicine Institute at the University of Alabama at Birmingham. He read from his first opinion essay titled, Scientific and Moral Imperatives Underlie Including Rare Disorders in the ARPA-H Mandate, ARPA-H being the acronym for the Advanced Projects Research Agency for Health. I'll bring you our conversation after a word from our sponsor. At Cytiva, our mission is to advance and accelerate therapeutics. Our customers undertake life-saving activities from biological research to developing vaccines, biologic drugs, and novel cell and gene therapies. Our job is to supply the tools and services they need to work better, faster, and safer. Learn more about Cytiva at Cytiva.com. That's C-Y-T-I-V-A dot com. Welcome to the First Opinion Podcast. I'm Pat Skerritt, editor of First Opinion, stats platform for articles written by biotech insiders, healthcare workers, researchers, and others with interesting or illuminating or provocative perspectives to share about their life sciences writ large. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today, Matt. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. I was so sorry to hear about Bertrand's death. You and his mom, Christina, told my colleague Casey Ross that you've known for some time that day was coming, but I can't imagine that makes it any easier. It's true. You know, he was born under challenging circumstances, and we always had a sense throughout his whole life that, yeah, that, that day was coming. And in some sense, it's amazing it took as long as it did. Um, when he was young, as I mentioned at the very beginning, the doctors were surprised uh, that he made it even beyond two or three years. Um, and it always seemed like death was, you know, at the door. And yet for some, somehow there always appeared some magic bullet that kept it, kept him going a little bit longer. Um, and fortunately, um, with a, with a high quality of life, you know, he was a happy child for almost his entire life. Well, his story really informs what we'll be talking about today. So if it's okay with you, I'd like to start with him. Tell me about Bertrand. What did he like to do? What did you and your family enjoy doing with him? Yeah, Bertrand was a joyful soul, uh, first and foremost. Uh, I think everybody who ever met him felt like he had a presence about him because as soon as you walked in the room, it didn't matter who you were or where you came from or what you did, he would make eye contact and he would smile. And I think that's the <clears> thing people always remarked about Bertrand was that he gave you his full attention all the time, every time. Uh, and, and I think that's, uh, that's how I remember him too. 
uh, as a little Zen master, if you will. <laughs> That's an unusual quality to be paid attention to. These days, especially, you know, in the era of the cell phone, it's amazing to make it through a dinner without <laughs> these little distraction rectangles. Um, but Bertrand was, he was present all the time and he was generally very joyful. If he wasn't sick in the hospital, he was very happy. Um, he loved his fish. He loved watching his TV shows uh, and he just loved to be around family. Um, and that was, it was almost like he was, you know, centuries older than the body he had in that sense. Yeah. You got him an aquarium, I read. Yeah, it was a custom aquarium that actually was donated. Um, and it was custom because he could fit his wheelchair underneath it and come literally face to face with the fish. Uh, there's there's these uh, chicklids, these bright orange chicklids that he just loved. Um, and then um, uh, symbolically zebrafish, uh, because we have used zebrafish as one of the model organisms to study his disease. And in fact, it's a model organism that my institute uses quite frequently now to study many rare diseases. So how have you been doing since he died? You know, it's, uh, again, I, it's one of those things where I knew it was going to come someday. I was still surprised when it happened. Um, you know, so I had more time to sort of prepare for that moment than the average parent. Of course, no one can ever fully prepare. And it, and it hit me hard. Uh, it really did. And, um, you know, I, I've grieved as much as any parent could, but also tried very hard to be grateful for the, the legacy his, he's left behind and even more grateful for the fact that uh, I, unlike you know, many parents in a similar situation, get to spend all day, every day extending that legacy, um, trying to do science in the service of patients just like him. And uh, I was just talking to a friend who'd lost a relative and I said, you know, there can be real meaning and connection as you work through grief, uh, in this case, connection to whoever you've lost. And I've found that to be absolutely true. So I still feel very connected to him uh, day to day. And I think that helps with the inevitable grief. Let's go back to the beginning if we can. How old was Bertrand when you thought something might be wrong? And what was it that worried you? Yeah, you know, um, e even right at the start, there was there were some signals that something wasn't quite right. He had to spend a couple nights in the NICU, but, you know, we, we came home, he seemed to be doing okay. But as new parents, I think we couldn't even see some of the earliest warning signs. Uh, I look back and my, my grandmother, who was a nurse, had her questions right from the start. But it was, by six months, it, he was so far off of the, the developmental milestones that his pediatrician stopped saying, you know, just, just relax. And he said, you know, I think you're right. I think there's something that's not quite right here. I read Seth Nukin's article, and it sounds like you all embarked on a diagnostic odyssey. And in what I can only imagine is the true sense of the word odyssey, a long quest marked by changes in fortune. How long did it take for, you know, say from six months until you actually had a diagnosis? Was that a long time? It, it was a long time. And I, I think, you know, on the record, it was about a four-year diagnostic odyssey. Um, it was about two years until we had the opportunity to enroll in a, a research study to do exome sequencing, which at the time was very novel. What's exome sequencing? So exome sequencing is where you look at the 2% of the human genome that encodes for proteins. And it's you know believed that uh, a large fraction of all genetic disease sort of lives in the exome, even though it's a very tiny portion of the overall genome. And so it, the, the, the theory was at the time was that if you just looked at that part, you could very inexpensively find the cause of many genetic disorders. And so uh, this is what this research study at Duke was trying to do, was to figure out, could you use exomes as a diagnostic tool? Um, could you uh, end these intractable diagnostic odysseys? In the rare disease world, as 
four years a long time, a short time, somewhere in between? It's both. Um, to a parent, it's an eternity, no matter what. <laughs> oh my God, yes. You know, it, it, I look back and you know, now it seems like it was a short amount of time, but I, I remember the day-to-day, <clears throat> what it was like to live with this feeling of not knowing why your child was suffering uh, and it's absolute agony. And then I look in the broader you know, undiagnosed and rare community. And there are people who are in their 40s and 50s who are undiagnosed. Um, I had the privilege wow. of working for the Undiagnosed Diseases Network. And we have patients in their 70s and 80s who've gone their whole lives without an answer. And I think, well, at least it was only four. That's amazing. As you read in the opening, your son was eventually diagnosed with an ultra rare genetic disorder called NGLY1 deficiency. What does the NGLY1 gene do? So uh, I, I can tell you what we thought it did at the time, and it still does that. It's just that we've learned a great bit more about what it actually does. So NGLY1, also pronounced NGLY1, it encodes an enzyme called N-glycanase. Uh, and, and bear in mind, I knew none of this, so I'll explain it. It, it encodes an enzyme called N-glycanase, and N-glycanase is responsible for deglycosylating misfolded N-linked glycoproteins as they are retrotranslocated from the endoplasmic reticulum into the cytosol. And I'm sure all of our listeners are going to get that on first glance. And, and there's a test after that. <laughs> yeah, so here's what that means. Um, so it turns out that proteins in your body have sugars attached to them. Uh, and there's different ways to attach them. And one of the ways that they happen to get attached is called N-linked. Okay. And if these proteins get misfolded, they have to get destroyed. And the first step in that process is to rip the sugars off. And that's what this gene is supposed to do. The only thing that's really changed from then till now is that we've discovered um, through a, a large you know, research network of folks that have sprang up to work on this, that it does more than just misfolded proteins. There are some actual properly folded proteins that also need these sugars torn off uh, in order to operate and function. And so some of the real advances in, in helping these patients has come from finding these other proteins that need to have their sugars torn off uh, because they can't when NGLY1 goes missing. And Without this functioning protein, what happens in the body? Yeah, so downstream, it leads to a constellation of symptoms. Um, perhaps most notably, um, and, or sort of unusually, it's it's a lack of tears. You know, so these children do not make really? tears by default. They, they don't. Yeah, it's, it's it, this leads to all kinds of problems with uh, the eyes, recurrent eye infections. I mean, he even had to have surgery at one point to drain the pus from his, his cornea. Um, it was just awful on a day-to-day -day basis, trying to keep his eyes from really drying out. And then it leads to severe developmental delay, uh, epilepsy, and a very unusual movement disorder. You all must have really had your hands full trying to take care of him. Yeah, it was, it was a lot of work for sure. I, I'd been cognizant of tracking my time. And in the morning, his sort of morning routine to you know, get him up, feed him, bathe him, all these things, it was the order of an hour and a half to two hours every morning. Um, and there was a similar routine in reverse, you know, every night in about an hour and a half to two hours. Um, and, you know, it, it is a lot of work, I got to say. I, 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 won't, I won't lie. And yet I realized after he was gone what it forced me to do. Um, you know, I realized that time was forcing me to be present in the moment and mindful. And so uh, even without really knowing how to practice meditation at the time, what he was doing for me was teaching me how to meditate by, by being present with him in, in that moment. You know, I imagine that getting a diagnosis could be a double-edged sword. It maybe offers a roadmap forward, but also maybe offers a pretty grim prognosis. Do you remember how you felt when the diagnosis was established? 
Oh, I, I remember very clearly how I felt. I was elated. I was so excited. I mean, it was the, you know, I, I think if to put it in perspective, I mean, after four years of not knowing what was killing him, um, to suddenly have an answer, um, a villain, a target, something to go after, it was it was exhilarating. Um, and so, you know, they, they of course, you know, the, the team at Duke, when they gave us the diagnosis, said, yeah, by the way, we're so sorry, there's nothing that can be done. Um, and it, I didn't, I just ignored that part. Um, I said, well, we'll worry about that later. Finally, we have an answer. And it also meant we could stop looking for what it was. I mean, it was, I mean, diagnostic odysseys are just grueling because as a parent, you don't feel like you can stop searching. Um, and so parents on these quests, they just, it's just one hospital after another, after another, one test after another, after another, trying to get an answer. And it's just awful. Uh, so that ended, that was gone. And, and it, it brought clarity and focus to what comes next. Now, are you the kind of guy who likes a mission? I, I, I think I am. I think I figured that out about myself, uh, thank, thanks in part to him. And he certainly gave me a mission right in that moment. Uh, and the mission was, first, got to understand this. Uh, and, and then, or in parallel, we've got to do something about it. We've got to use this to somehow extend and enrich his life in some way. You know, for some people with rare diseases, when they're actually diagnosed with something, it, it opens the door to a community of other people that have the same condition. Was that what happened for you all? You know, not initially, you know, because coupled with the diagnosis was also a discovery. Um, and they said, you know, by the way, um, he seems to be the first human ever documented with this disease. Uh, really? Yeah, he was a patient zero. And they said, so not only do we not know how this is going to progress, um, you know, but we can't even tell you uh, what it's like for other patients because as of right now, there are none. Um, and they said, you yeah, will try. We'll keep our eyes out to see if another one shows up. Um, and, and I remember looking back at them saying, well, I'll search for them too. <laughs> and did you find any? I did, actually. Uh, that's, that's the crazy part because, you know, we, we you know, not only do we have access to genomic technology, we have access to the Internet. Um, and uh, I used uh, you know, a sophisticated weapon called Google uh, and blogging. And what I did is I wrote a blog post that was really designed to do a couple different things. Uh, the first was I wanted it to go viral. So I gave it a, a catchy headline called Hunting Down My Son's Killer, a uh, picture of Liam Neeson up at the top. And so that, that takes care of making it go viral. <laughs> and then you know, I, I used my, my insights as a computer scientist to sort of you know, reverse engineer or hack Google and trick it into ranking this article highly for other patients that were out there searching for symptoms like what Bertrand had, so that if they were out there, they were gonna find me. Uh, and that is in fact exactly what happened. And it happened within six weeks. I mean, it did not take a lot of time at all to realize that there were other patients out there, or really for them to realize that they were out there um, and that they had the same, even you know, right down to the, the gene, the same gene, um, uh, uh, aberrant in, in them as it was in Bertrand. So when when your son was in Children's Hospital of Alabama fighting a really serious infection in 2019, you helped him in that fight by doing something that you do well. You wrote code. Can you describe that? Yeah. So um, this, this was, uh, in, in many ways, yeah, up, up until the very end, the scariest hospitalization of his entire life. And this is a child who went to the ICU dozens of times over the course of his life, but this was the longest by far. He was in the ICU for almost six weeks in the end with a very serious uh, infection with sepsis and came very close to dying several times uh, during that hospitalization. 
And I remember just feeling, you know, agonized in the middle of this, probably about two and a half weeks in, where it just seemed like we weren't making any forward progress. And I was watching him slowly fade away um, as we, because we didn't even have a name for for whatever this pathogen was. We couldn't, they they could not figure it out. Um, and so uh, I just sat there and said, well, I got to do something. I can't do nothing. And the, the thing I knew how to do is write code, as you, as, as you mentioned. And at this point in time, I had an important addition to my arsenal. Um, so through the Institute, I've been developing an artificial intelligence agent. Um, we call it Medicanrin. And the advantage of this agent, what it brings to the table, is that it has effectively read all of the medical literature, at least all the abstracts in PubMed, and through this consortium that works with the NIH, it has absorbed in a structured fashion, you know, hundreds of different biomedical data sets. Um, and so you can ask it very sharp questions. And, and, and I, I'd never used it for this purpose before, but realized I could. I said, if I give this tool a constellation of symptoms, um, I can say, give me the most likely diseases based on everything you know that's that's out there in the literature, everything you know in all these data sets. And it gave me back a ranked list. Um, and yeah, I think there was only about you know, a dozen diseases the, at the very top. And so I, I, I said to the infectious disease team, I said, I think these are the diseases we should be looking for. Uh, and, and in parallel with that, um, there were some advances that had gone on in a new field called metagenomics. Um, and so that also came to bear and, and helped solve the problem too. So metagenomics is, uh, or your metagenome, if you will, is um, all the DNA floating around in you that's not you. So all the genetic material, I should say. Huh. So we've all got a lot of stuff inside of us besides us. And if you're infected with something, then its genetic material is also going to float around inside of you. And so you can grab tissues or blood and you can look at all the non-human stuff floating around. And that can give you a sense of what might be there. And in fact, that can produce a ranked list. And if you intersect that with the ranked list from the tool, there was one very obvious answer at the end. And that it was a very likely and unusual variant of Pseudomonas. Um, Which is a bacteria, right? It's a bacteria. And uh, there was other interesting clues in there because when I looked at some of the other little interesting bugs in there, there was a thing called a phage, which is a little virus that eats bacteria and that the Pseudomonas phage was going crazy inside of Bertrand. So that clearly meant there was a lot of Pseudomonas to be eaten inside of him. So all everything lined up and I said, this is it. This is it. Um, there was some other possibility. There was a... a Unusually high levels of E. coli, perhaps, but uh, it's when, when you sort of say this is this is the set of things it could be. How do you treat it? It led directly to meropenem as a as a treatment. Um, so after about four and a half weeks in, they put him on meropenem, and within days, everything's going in the right direction. Wow, he's out within a week. That's an antibiotic, right? It's an antibiotic. That's right. So doctors can be pretty territorial and prickly. How did they feel about you um, kind of joining the team? You know, it, it, generally throughout his medical history, um, it had gone pretty well. Yeah, I, I, you know, I, I, we learned very early on that you have to approach uh, physicians from a place of humility um, and that if you try to, you know, uh, a lot of them will get really upset if you try to Google stuff on them, you know, and, and, you know, so I learned, you know, I, even as tricks, like, you know, I, I had honeybees, I'd bring them honey and things like that so that I could, you know, get them more receptive to, to these ideas. Most of them that worked with me for any stretch of time learned it was that they should take my suggestions seriously. And, and most of them did. Um, and frankly, the ones that didn't, I just stopped working with them. 
Um, so we got we had a pretty good team over time. But every now and then, there were some serious clashes. Uh, there were absolutely some serious clashes that happened from time to time where there is a very there would be a very old school physician, very you know sort of uh, patriarchal attitude, and just would not accept any input from from the parents. Even even when I uh, was already the director at this medical institute you know, at an adjoining institution. Even then, it could be hard at times for a few of them to be receptive. You know, parents of sick kids often feel helpless. It must have made you feel good to know that your work could actually make a difference for your son and others. You know, it, it, it absolutely did. I, I remember early on a feeling of powerlessness um, and the agony to watch your child suffer and feel like there's nothing you can do. Yeah, you know, of all the things a human being can experience, uh, that sense as a parent to watch your child suffer and feel like there's nothing you can do, I think it's the worst, at least the worst I've ever experienced. Um, and so I think that pushed me to figure out what I could do. I think it pushed me into learning the genetics and it pushed me into learning how to even think about looking for therapies. Um, and, you know, it, it, gives me, it does give me a, a real degree of fulfillment uh, in my work to know that um, you know, the lessons that I've learned uh, were relevant not only in his life, but now in the lives of many others. Your first opinion offers what I think is sage, but not necessarily immediately obvious advice to the folks charged with setting up the Advanced Research Projects Agency for Health. Uh, it, it's modeled on DARPA, as you mentioned, which brought us the internet and GPS and a whole bunch of other interesting things. In the essay, you cited cancer, Alzheimer's disease, and diabetes as motivating challenges for the agency. But you wrote that, and I'm quoting here, the scientific imperative is clear. Treating rare disorders will be the key to treating many common ones. How does that work? So th this is something that I have become to appreciate increasingly in my role. You know, as I transition more and more, I'm, I'm, I'll be honest, rare diseases still make up a lot of what I do, but increasingly, we get people with intractable common conditions reaching out for help, too. Cancer is a big one, actually. Um, but occasionally, Alzheimer's or Parkinson's or diabetes. Um, and what we've learned through this uh, is that common conditions, in some sense, uh, aren't all that common. That if you look at a patient and how that disease manifests inside them, it can be very different patient to patient. And, you know... We don't necessarily use a genome to find the root molecular cause in that patient, but we have other tools at our disposal, um, increasingly powerful tools, in fact, in the form of, say, transcriptomics or metabolomics, that might lead us to that sort of core molecular cause in that patient uh, or a constellation of molecular causes in that patient, which can then suddenly be tackled in a very similar way uh, using the same kinds of tools that we use on rare diseases. The difference being that in rare diseases, there's generally just one thing to go after. Um, whereas in a common disorder, there might be several targets you have to go after at the same time. So in a sense, my Alzheimer's disease might be different than your Alzheimer's disease. It, it almost certainly would be. Um, you know, the, in fact, it, there's already a deep understanding of the genetics of Alzheimer's, and it's continuing to expand as we find additional variants that can really drive predisposition to or interact with the pathology of something like Alzheimer's. Uh, in fact, one of the projects I have in collaboration with neurology and, and folks here at UAB um, and funded by the Alzheimer's you know, Drug Development Alliance is going exactly after one of these, these sorts of mutations. Uh, there's a mutation in a, a gene called TREM2, which is not the one that usually drives Alzheimer's, that's, that's APOE, um, but this one looks like it might be targetable. 
Um, moreover, and we're, we're also thinking now, if we hit this gene, because it causes a very aggressive early form of Alzheimer's, and seems to be involved in Alzheimer's pathology more generally, hitting this might be a way to actually help lots of people, not just those that suffer from this particular version of Alzheimer's. Interesting. You know, the term rare disease makes sense when it's applied to an individual or a small group of individuals, but it doesn't really give a sense of their scope. Because there are so many, I've, I've read that there are maybe 7,000 different rare diseases that we know about. As many as 30 million people in the U.S. and 300 million people around the world are living with the rare disease. How do you tackle so many diseases with so many different causes? Yeah, so I think, you know, to tackle that many diseases, uh, and, and and the number goes up all the time, by the way, because, you know, we're continuing to discover more all the time. Right. You added you added one to the list. I, I did. I did. And um, I, I think what it, what it calls for is a systemic approach to treating disease at the root cause, um, and then applying that approach uh, broadly across as many diseases, or really individuals as we can. Uh, to a certain extent, there, there's the essence of this within the NIH in a very small way in places like NCATS, um, and even inside that within something, you know, there's a little unit called CAN, the Cures Acceleration Network, and that seems to be their philosophy, but they're a teeny little piece of the overall NIH. I think their budget's you know, maybe $20 million. It's, it's, not, it's not very big at all uh, in the grand scheme of things. So DARPA is being used as a model for this new agency for health, and I, I have to I have to uh, say that it's a proposed model. It's not something that's really out there yet. What makes DARPA a good model for biomedical research? Yeah, so I, I think you got to roll it back to what makes DARPA a good model for research in general. Um, you know, and then, and then at the end think, well, gosh, why didn't we do this sooner for health? Um, and, you know, my experience with DARPA is that, um, you know, when it comes to applied research, you know, taking science and, and you know, making it real in a very targeted way. Um, DARPA's got a formula and, and, and there's, there's several components to it. One is you bring in fresh people. So at DARPA, no one's, the, no one's a lifer. No one can be there very long. So you're constantly bringing in people from the outside. Um, and these people have to come with a vision. They have to come with an incredibly bold proposal. Yeah, we, we would joke that the rule is you have to promise to violate at least one law of physics. <laughs> so you know they, they aim for very you know high reward and inherently high risk projects. And then they, they focus a lot on risk mitigation. Every time I would propose to DARPA and every time I would give updates, they would always ask, okay, what are your present risks? What are your strategies for mitigation? There, there, there's a heavy focus on that element of it. And in, they do it internally too. You know, so when they go to solve a problem, they don't take one approach to that problem, they take 10. So between taking a very diversified portfolio, um, giving the project managers a very limited amount of time, um, and then structuring the projects so that you can you know, come to these failure points quickly and, and reallocate resources towards the past that are working out, um, it tends to produce you know, accelerated targeted innovation. Um, and, and in some cases in very spectacular ways. So as you wrote in your first opinion essay and read at the beginning, when the pandemic hit, every one of us began to feel the kind of urgency that I had known for Bertrand's whole life. What was it like for you to watch the scientific communities spring into action to find treatments and vaccines for COVID? 
You know, it was it was extraordinary. Um, and, you know, we were part of the effort, too. I mean, to some extent, we still are. Um, we shifted a lot of our resources immediately into repurposing for COVID. Um, you know, this isn't in the essay, but we, we partnered with the VA by April of 2020 to launch a clinical trial for treatments uh, using the same kinds of technologies we were using to predict um, how to find treatments for rare diseases. We, we just flipped it right around for COVID. You know, right away. What, what was great to me was it was a validation of the thesis that if you if you build tools for the rare or really for the molecular, you can apply it to almost anything. Uh, and that seemed to be true uh, even in the earliest days of COVID. Do you think that urgency can be replicated for other diseases? I, th I think it absolutely can. Um, you know, I, I, I think part of it is, and this is why, you know, um, in the essay I call for integrating you know patients or patient representatives directly into the management of these projects i think if you take patients or patient advocates parents like me and you were to make them the program managers for some of these ambitious projects they would take that urgency into the agency um, because you know for, for them you know they've got to find that answer and and mm -hmm. they are going to inherently want to search for the the fastest way to do that uh, and with the highest chance of success so will you be watching arpa h from afar or if President Biden's team comes knocking on your door, as President Obama and his team did for you in 2015, would you join up? You know, I, if, if, if they came knocking, if they asked, you know, would you want to, to, to be part of this? I'd, I'd ha of course, I'd have to consider it. Uh, it's, it's so directly aligned with, with my mission um, that, you know, I, I, you know, another chance to serve my country like that, of course, I would, I would have to consider it. Can't say what I would do because I also feel like I'm serving that mission where I am right now. Um, I, uh, I love being in the trenches with the patients, uh, you know, working on the science day after day, you know, and, and seeing the fruits of that, um, you know, come to life uh, to see patients get treated and get better. I mean, it's, it is, there's no comparable job. Um, you know, and, and whoever becomes, you know, director of Harper H, you know, they'll get to see this too, um, but at a slightly higher level. They'll be a little more removed from it, not quite in the trenches, but, you know, in the towers overseeing dozens of trenches all at the same time. Um, you know, and the other thing is, you know, government is hard. Um, you know, I, I loved working in the Obama administration and it was, it was, you know, one of the, the I think some of the greatest things I'll ever do I did there. Um, at the same time, it's, it's, it's draining work. It's hard. Um, I'm glad I did it. Um, but I, I know what it would be like to go back to that too. And, uh, <laughs> I got two small kids that I really want to spend time with. So Matt, some people, when they suffer a loss, they kind of run away from, not run away from it, but they, they try to barricade themselves from it. You're almost constantly in touch with people who are living your life before Bertrand died. Is that a good thing? You know, uh, you're exactly right. Um, and in some ways it is a good thing. Um, you know, so I'm fortunate to have a good team of counselors on my side, um, have for a while now. And, and what they've taught me is that there can be an instinct to run away from things that resemble the trauma. Um, and they said that the one of the best things you can do is not to avoid it because avoidance can metastasize, it can consume everything if you learn to use avoidance as a tactic, but to to run toward it. And and I have felt, you know, cer certainly, you know, in the direct, the direct aftermath uh, of his passing, uh, a strong desire to avoid for a little bit. Um, and I realized it was kind of metastasizing that. You know, I, I flinched when another patient email would come in, and after really thinking about it and talking it through, I said, you know, I've I've got to run into it. Um, because 
I know what it's like to be that parent looking for answers, seeking help. Um, and so I just don't, you know, I just don't think I can ever stop doing that at this point. Uh, cause I, I just know in my heart what it's like to be that parent sending that email, looking for hope. Well, Matt, thank you so much for sharing your stories about your son and your work. This has been really interesting. Oh, thank you. No, I, I really enjoyed this. Um, no, it was fun to, to get to work on this with you. I you know, really appreciate the clarity you brought to the writing, by the way. Um, that I, I very much appreciate that. Uh, and this was fascinating. I just love this conversation. So thank you. Thank you for listening to the First Opinion Podcast. It's produced by Teresa Gaffney. Alyssa Ambrose is the senior producer, and Rick Burke is the executive producer. Special thanks this week to Stats Hyacinth Epandado. I love to hear from listeners. Let me know which First Opinion contributors you'd like to hear on the show or what topics the podcast should take on. You can do that by sending an email to first.opinion at statnews.com. And if you have a minute, please leave a review or rating on whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. That's it for now. Be well during this strange and uncertain time. Mm-hmm.